Pastor John Lieb, everybody. Hello. Uh, how do you follow the J Show? Well, uh, how many of you guys make New Year's resolutions? Okay, I'm not going to ask how many of you actually keep them, but uh, I do want to encourage you. Uh, it, 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 there are New Year's affirmations that you can make that are really helpful. You guys know? You ever, you ever used affirmations? But there are some affirmations to kind of stay away from. I want to give you a, a few examples, okay? So New Year's affirmations to avoid. As I let go of my feelings of guilt, I'm in touch with my inner sociopath. Uh, you, you have to look sort of out in the distance when you say this one. I have the power to channel my imagination into ever-soaring levels of suspicion and paranoia. My intuition nearly makes up for my lack of wisdom and judgment. When someone hurts me, I know that forgiveness is cheaper than a lawsuit, but not nearly as rewarding. <laughs> and I need not suffer in silence while I can moan, whimper, and complain. Get hold on to that one. Blessed are the flexible, for they can tie themselves into knots. Today, I will gladly share my experience and advice for there are no sweeter words than I told you so. <laughs> and here's, one to re- here's one. I don't know if you should hold on to this or, or, or embrace it or, or reject it. A scapegoat is almost as good as a solution. Ooh, okay. Just for today, I will not sit in my living room all day in my underwear. Instead, I will move my computer into the bedroom. <laughs> the complete lack of evidence is the surest proof that the conspiracy is working. Okay? Guys, I like that. So, some can, we have some, you know, we have some of those uh, ultimate preppers in our church that like a good conspiracy. So, hold on. Okay, let's see. Uh, I will no longer waste my time living in the past. I will spend it worrying about the future. Okay? Last but not least, before I criticize a man, I will walk a mile in his shoes. That way, if he gets angry, he's a mile away and he's barefoot. Okay, you guys like that. All right, good. So, you guys all know, uh, we, uh, sort of uh, American custom is, is resolutions, New Year's resolutions. And uh, we, uh, a resolution is, is essentially, has two parts. You know, you look back on the past, uh, you review, and then you preview. And, you, you know, you, you look at your goals, you look at, you know, where you're struggling, and you try to make some firm resolution that, that's something you actually keep so you don't add to the, go- the guilt that you accrued from the last year. But a lot of people focus their resolutions on health and finances, work, family life, you know, real practical, Im- important things. But what I want to suggest that there is an area that, that most of us overlook, and this is not humorous, <laughs> that... Actually, if, if you get serious about this one area, it will impact every other area of your life. And that's the area of love. And if, if I think if, if someone asked me, I just got asked to speak somewhere, and I was thinking, what would I, what would I teach on? And I, you know, as I was pondering this week, it really struck me that 
I don't think there's any more important thing we can talk about than love. Now, I know we, people give a lot of lip service to love. But if, if in a free market economy, the value is, of something is assigned by how plentiful or rare it is, I think love must be really, really expensive because there seems to be a, a real lack of it uh, in, in the world today. There's a lack of it in our country. There's a lack of it in homes. There's a lack of it almost everywhere you look. And so what I want to talk today, I, I titled this, Getting Serious About Loving Well. I'm adding that adjective to it, loving well. I think it's, it, it holds something for us. And I want to read a passage to you. There's a, you, could, you can almost just take a Bible and open it like this and go like this and you would find a passage that's talking about love in some way. But I want to look at something Paul said that he wrote to a young leader in the first century. And he said uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said, uh, the goal of our instruction is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. So what he said is, already in the early church, the emphasis that they had gotten on love, which you know, picked up what the Old Testament was all about according to Jesus, and then when Jesus came, the, the idea of love just took on a whole new meaning. It, it, it became something way more powerful and more concrete because it, love was, was uh, pictured through this person, Jesus. But already, people were getting distracted. And they were, he used these two words there, they were distracted and they were turning away. So they were wandering, sort of losing sight of, of their purpose, or they just were turning away from it. And so what I want to look at today is, what Paul says is, he uses this word, he says, the goal of our instruction, that word goal there, it's a, it's a big philosophical word. It's, it, this one word has, in, has inspired just tens of thousands of pages to be written because it says it's about purpose. It's about purpose. And if there's one thing that people really struggle with is what is my purpose in life? You know, what, does my life have any purpose? Does life have a purpose? For, for literally thousands of years, people have wrestled with that. And what Paul says, because he heard it from Jesus and the Jewish people had this drilled into them for 1,500 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ, that our loving well is our business. Loving well is our purpose. Loving well. Now, there's other aspects to our purpose, but at the heart of who we are and what we're created for and what, what really makes life fulfilling is the issue of loving well. That's what Paul says here. He said, all that we teach and all that we labor to, to and in our example, to offer to people as, as the, early leader, the leaders of the early church was about loving well. Now, why did they do that? Uh, they could have talked about money, politics, theology, war, death, and they did talk about those things, but they constantly stressed love because Christ taught them that. He just talked about it all the time. 
And, and he talked about love in a way that nobody else had ever talked about it. And then he lived out this life of loving well in a way that nobody else ever had before. That's why he impacted so many people. Now, if Paul says that, that loving well, and this is the challenge, loving well sounds like, you know, a neat idea, but it's pretty hard to do. It's really challenging. I mean, people, I, I, I perform wedding ceremonies all the time. And people have the best intentions when they stand before me. And everyone's, there's all the, the warm feelings are just billowing out over the crowd. And, you know, it's, it's almost, you can almost feel, it's almost palpable as you, you know, stand in front of a couple and, and they recite their vows. But it doesn't take very long before, you know, hide the sharp objects in the house. <laughs> because the two people who stood there and were... A, vowing their love to one another or going at it like cats and dogs. And it's really easy uh, for us to lose sight of what love is because it's, it's so hard to love. Well, Paul says that loving well, he said the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what he says that love, loving well, springs from these three qualities. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So he says, if, if you want to love well, those three qualities have to be a part of your life. They have to be a growing part of your life. And if you break it down, you could say loving well depends on our motives for love, the shape of our love, and the source of our love. Loving well depends on our motives for loving, the shape of our love, and then, what's the last one? The source of our love, because it isn't in us. We'll see that. So now, I want to look at those three things. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. But I want, I want you to, as, as you hear me talk about these, I want you to keep something in mind. These three qualities are the result of this interplay this divine interplay between God who is working in our lives and all around us and how we respond to him. So a pure heart is not something that we're responsible for, but it's something that comes as a result of our responses. All right, can you follow me there? A good conscience is something that comes as a result of our response to God's activity in our lives. And then a sincere faith, again, it's not some bootstrap virtue. It is the result of, like every good thing, every virtue is the result of the activity of God in our lives and around us and then our response to it. And, you know, so much teaching in the church gets framed in this you got to work harder sort of approach. And that's just not the gospel it's not the bible at all because it ignores the fact that god is at work day and night all around us in every aspect of our lives if if we feel like god's far off that has nothing to do with where he really is because the bible says he is right here in fact let me let me it's, it is a bit of a rabbit trail i just want to read you this first because it's it's a perfect example of it Paul is saying, uh, uh, the writer is saying something about 
don't worry about money. And he says, never will I leave you. And in the Greek it says, never, ever, ever will I forsake you. Now, it didn't translate that way in English because the translators just kind of think, oh, that's redundant. But do you understand the point God's trying to make is? I'm never going to leave you. I am never absent from your life. And yet when we feel like God is way over there, way far from us, the truth is he's not. We've just lost our sense of his presence. But even if we can't sense him, we can stand in the confidence that he is actually right here and that he's actually at work in my life and all around me all the time. So Paul says, if we recognize that there's, this, that there's an interplay that can create something, it empowers us to be able to grow in loving well. So if you're frustrated in your life and you go, my life would work so much better if, if I could learn to love well, you have a role to play. God is at work in your life right now, and he wants you to learn to respond. So to have a pure heart, here's what, a pure heart is about your motivation. Our motivation for love is really important. It's no surprise that Paul starts with the heart because that's where everything starts. Why we do what we do is as important as what we do. Sometimes we are just focused on the outcome, like love, you gotta love this way. But the truth is, why we do something is the most crucial aspect of the process. And in fact, it's what defines whether that's really love or not. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all I possess to the poor, and I even do something heroic, like surrendering my body to the flames to rescue someone else, but if I don't have love, I've gained nothing. And you go, Hold on. Back up. Someone gives away everything they have to help poor people. Isn't that loving? Not necessarily. The question is, why are you doing it? So you can look magnanimous. So you can try to get rid of guilt because you've been such a greedy character your whole life. Because you want to impress someone. I mean, there could be lots of really base motivations for why people are generous and Paul says that kind of love you gain nothing with that kind of love you see who are we doing what we're doing for that is really a crucial question now the hard thing about that is you guys know this as well as I do most of the time I can't tell who I'm doing it for right do you always know why you're doing what you're doing I'll tell you this, this is one of the things I'm, I'm more convinced, I'm as convinced of as anything, any other fact I know in my life. We, God is purposeful and we are purposeful beings and everything we do, we do for a reason. I say this all, every week I say this at least five times to people. When people are asking me to sort out some problem in their life, I go, you have to realize what you're doing, you're doing for a purpose. It might not be a good purpose, it might not be a purpose you're even aware of, but you're doing it for a reason. And so if we're going to learn to love well, we have to begin to identify why am I doing what I'm doing. So how do you do that? That's really hard. And, and there is no way it's not hard. I just want to tell you that. But the context of the world that we live in today makes it even harder for us to be very self-aware people. Because 
this freaking little object that we all, most of us carry around is the biggest source of distraction from really knowing what's going on in our heart that has ever existed, I believe. And I have one. But I know I have to constantly watch what this thing is, the role it's playing in my life. Because it will distract me from what's really going on in my life, what God's doing in my life, what's going on inside me and my heart. And, you know, I don't want to shame you if, if you sit in church and look at your phone. You may say, John, you're just not very interesting. <laughs> and I, I get that. But, but God can speak through donkeys <laughs> in profound ways. And so you might want to pay attention even to what I might be saying up here. <laughs> Every once in a while, some pearl might come out amongst all the costume jewelry of every message. And that one pearl could be worth listening to. But if you're distracted by this, you're not going to get it. And so we've been introducing this sort of slowly, but I want to encourage you to pay attention to something. The key to learning what's going on in your heart is this practice of contemplative prayer where we learn to be silent and alone as a way of life on a regular basis. And the way you can begin to practice contemplative, contemplative prayer is you can just take 10 minutes every day and just sit in the Lord's presence. Don't say anything. Don't ask anything. Don't think. Don't praise Him. Just say, God, you're worth my complete attention Everything I have, I'm just laying it out before you. If you want to say something to me, say it. But what happens, there, there's, there's multiple things happening in your life every minute you do that. But one of the things that you'll notice that starts happening is the dust in your life starts settling. The fog starts clearing. And this clarity about the movements of your heart starts emerging and suddenly, you start becoming aware. And I, just, just for a second, I want you just to be quiet. Give you 10 seconds to be quiet. I want you to just listen to everything that you can hear in the room. All right? Go. Yeah, close your eyes. Now, my hearing's getting <laughs> poorer and poorer as the day goes by, but... What are some of the sounds you guys heard? Say them out loud. Kids? Good hearing. Things in the hall? The air handler, right? The air. Hear the hum, the slow hum, right? Yeah, you can, you can hear your breathing. If, if, you know, some of us, we can hear a heartbeat because, you, you know, you hear it beating in your ear. And there's other little ambient noises you might have heard, you know, the shuffling of someone's paper. You might have moved your foot, you know, the sound of your shoe rubbing against the carpet. All these little things, those sounds are there all the time, but we're not aware of them. As soon as we get still, as soon as we get quiet, solitude and stillness and quiet are really crucial to be able to begin to develop and cultivate a pure heart. And so, I mean, there's, there's, there's four other things I could tell you about that. But I urge you, 
If you want love to grow in your life, you have to be still. In fact, a wise person said once, I I want to make sure I quote this just exactly how he said it. Motion creates life. Stillness creates love. I urge you to explore that. Because so much is going on in our hearts, and if we don't love well, we're not going to pick it up. For example, give just a quick example. Authority figures that, that, that they're, all, they're part of all of our lives. Bosses, you know, policemen, they're, 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 they're in public and private places. Authority figures attract animosity. Whether they're doing anything that deserves it or not, because what happens is most people go through life and they experience people abusing, abusing authority and it's hurt them. And that hurt, they're carrying around inside them and then they get around people who are authority figures and they just don't like them. Irregardless of whether the person warrants that kind of attitude, it's almost inevitable. If you have an axe to grind against someone you will grind that axe when you encounter someone that reminds you of them. Now, I can tell you that. I'm a pastor. I'm an authority figure. People are always pissed off at me. And, I mean, I give them reasons to. I'll admit that. But not all the time. I mean, I've met people before, and I see the look on their face. They just don't like me. I haven't opened my mouth yet. They don't like me already. Because as soon as they hear I'm a pastor, all of a sudden... All the stuff that's in their heart that they're unaware of starts working up into the present and then it becomes a part of our interaction. And all of us have these things going on inside us that we're unaware of. And we can't have a pure heart and love well unless we begin to become aware of those and and then deal with them appropriately. Second, what's the shape of our love? So a good conscience... Paul is saying here is love has a moral dimension. Love is not a sentiment. It's not a feeling. Conscience is about this inner referee that we all have that, that affirms certain behaviors as appropriate or convicts us, condemns us for behaving in certain ways. Or even when we think about doing certain things, our conscience will say, uh-uh, don't do that. Now, when I was growing up, we used to call our conscience Jiminy Cricket. You have to be a certain age to remember that story. But, but I thought that was just a beautiful, classic illustration of that little inner referee that we all have that, that helps us go through life. Think about our inner consciences. It is not perfect. Your conscience is not infallible. And the New Testament describes the word conscience with multiple adjectives. You can have a good conscience. You can have a wounded conscience. You can have a seared conscience. You can have a weak conscience. There's all kinds of ways that your conscience can be shaped that will affect the outcome of how you live your life. And so Paul says that this conscience, a good conscience, is going to shape our love. And it's crucial to understanding how love is shaped. Now, here's the thing about your conscience. You've got three options, all human beings. This, philosophically, this is 
pretty basic understanding. There's three ways that our conscience operates. We either have a moral system that we base on our own intuitions, our individual feelings about whatever, whatever appears to me to be right or wrong, my own intuition guides me. Secondly, and this is probably the, the widest kind of way that people's conscience has been shaped is by social constructs. That, that groups of people agree about what's right and wrong and then that becomes the referee for us. Socially constructed ethics. Then, the, but the problem is everybody knows <laughs> option one and option two have huge holes in them because you can just look around the world and see that Diane's Diane might be a person who is in a country whose value system, they've agreed that women are not equal to men and women should be treated a certain way. Jay could be raised in a Western human rights-oriented culture that says women should be treated equal to men. Well, how do you solve that? What ends up happening is just they start shouting at each other. You shout the other person down. And we take it for granted human rights are universally recognized and acknowledged. But you can go to lots of countries in the world today, they're pushing back against Western ideas of human rights. They're saying your universal ideas of human rights are not something that everybody recognizes. And we don't like you pushing all that down our throats. And if there is no standard beyond either my own intuition or what the group has decided, how do you resolve that? Why should we privilege our Western view of how women are treated over how women are treated in those developing world countries? If there's no objective basis for ethics, there, it's, a, it's, a, it's quicksand. And there is no resolution to it. Our country is like that now. We used to have a general consensus about certain things, and that's broken down. And you see in our country now the, the tension between all these people who say, I think it should be this way, and I think it should be this way. There's no consensus anymore that people can point to and say, this is how we should look at this issue that we're, we're wrestling with. The third option is what people of faith believe is revelation. That God speaks, that the, that the, the ground of morality is God, his nature, and then our design. Now, I don't have time to, you know, we could, that'd be an interesting thing to talk about, but what followers of Jesus have embraced over the years is, is really simple. Our conscience, a good conscience, comes from this process. Our moral conscience is shaped by God's Spirit using God's Word in concert with God's people. That our conscience has to be shaped by God's will and the Spirit working that into all of our hearts. But it's done in a, the context of, of a community. And not just this little community, or not just me and my three or four people in my Bible study, but the church has recognized that real wisdom comes when we listen to the voices of the people of God throughout history. That they have something to say. I, I used to think 
that the church started in the Jesus movement. Like before that, everybody was like really, they were out in the woods. Because, it, you know, when I came to Christ, it, was, it seemed like, gosh, this is so much like the New Testament. But that wasn't the first time that people ever experienced an awakening. That's just when I came to Christ. And all the smart people in the world didn't just, they weren't just born now. You can go back and look at, at, at people in Plato and Aristotle's time and the Egyptians and the, the Mayans and people who, who did engineering that's mind-blowing. They didn't have tools and materials and things that we have now. But we're not any smarter than them. And we've certainly proved we're not more moral than them. And the tools that we're developing seem to be, our morality seems to be creating new ways to misuse all these new tools that we're developing. Well, if we let God's spirit through his word in the context of community shape us, it's incredible how our conscience can be awakened and be useful. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, I read this story about some, in Afghanistan, some mujahideen, uh, real serious uh, Islamic jihadis came to Christ. This whole group of men who were part of a militia that lived up in the mountains in, uh, near Kandahar. And they came down into the city uh, to go to a training by a, a Christian development organization that was going to teach them how to start schools in their villages because they, they wanted to see their kids get an education and begin to, you know, have a, a different kind of life. They saw the world changing. So they, these mujahideen come down with their ammunition belts on and their guns, and they're, they're followers of Jesus now, right? They're new Christians. And there's a lot of this happening in the Muslim world that people don't know about. But they come down to this missionary compound, and, they, and they, there's two, two Western women, one uh, uh, Canadian lady and one American lady, who are teaching about how to start these schools in their villages, and they're Christians. And so uh, there's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story, the West and East culture meeting. But here's the cool thing that happened. After a week... The, the men were impressed with these women and they finally started talking to them because in their culture, men don't have normal conversations with women. They were willing to sit there and, and, and listen to them teach and explain you know, this school project. Well, finally, the leader of the Mujahideen, who was a really, he was the first Christian in his whole community and all the other men came to Christ because of him. He sits down with the women at dinner on one of the, towards the end of their training and he said, I want to ask you a question. He said, you, you're clearly uh, uh, serious followers of Jesus, and, and we, res- now we know we can trust you, and we respect you now. Could you help us with, I have a question, and my men, we have this question that we're wrestling with right now. We haven't, we've only been following Jesus for, for a few months, but we want to do what he wants, and we want to obey him. Here's my question. The two women are sitting there, and he goes, should I stop beating my wife? We laugh, right? And they did. They laughed, and he just, he's looking at them real seriously, and they go, oh. They realized he's serious. And they, could you explain what you mean by that? You know, they didn't want to put him off, and so they said, listen. Uh, he, he goes, it's our tradition. When, when, we, when we get married, when we're 17, 18, 19 years old, our mother will go and buy us a bride. And then our mother tells us, what our relationship's supposed to be like. 
We are told that our wives are not our friends, they're our enemies. That we are not to tell them anything about our lives. That what we do as men is no business of theirs. They are to have our children, they're to to, uh, take care of our household, they're for sex, they're for dinner, but that's it. And so that's the nature of our relationship. And we're taught by our mothers, our mothers. He said, our mothers teach us this in our village for generations. If your wife displeases you or disrespects you, you can beat her. And if she disrespects you enough, he says, I'm one of the village elders, and I've done this. He said, the village elders will be called into homes where a husband's wife is becoming unruly, and she will be warned There will be serious consequences if you disrespect your husband. And if she continues to disrespect her husband, the husband will call the village elders. They'll all gather. They will grab the woman by her hair. They will drag her out to the local graveyard. They will dig a grave and they will bury her alive to warn all the other wives that you can't disrespect your husbands. These women are going, they're like going, this can't be happening in the real world, the modern world today. There's no way. And they said, and this is common? And he said, yes, this is all over, all over our country. This is how we're taught to relate to our wives. And so he said this. He said, is this what Jesus wants? Because as we read the Bible, it seems like that custom is not agree with the teachings of Jesus and, and the New Testament. Can you help us? And so these two women are just like, their heads are swimming. And, and they said, okay, we'll start sending you Bible passages. So they, they, these guys had, you know, cell phones. So after the meeting that night, she, uh, uh, several of the women, they just started texting him passages. You know, they, they, they read their Bibles and they're finding a passage and they text it to him. And then 10 minutes later, they text him another. Well, the next morning after breakfast, they, they start the meeting and the man st- stands up, the leader, he says, I got to tell you something. He said, can I say something? Uh, All night long, we have been reading the Bible verses that you gave us. And we've all decided this. And he said, I'm I'm the the head elder in our village. And he said, I'm standing up in in front of all my my men and in front of you and before God. And he said, I will never beat my wife again. And I will never let another man in our village beat his wife we will never, ever allow women to be abused the way that they have been in our culture. And then he said, and when we go home, we're going to apologize to our wives for treating them this way. And we're going to start loving them the way we see that Jesus wants us to love them. And this is all new to us, but we, we commit ourselves to do this. Well, they went home, and at that point, Nobody knew this, but at that point, the only people that had come to Christ in that whole village were all men. Well, when these leader, these Mujahideen men went back, who were now followers of Jesus, and, and did this, a revival broke out amongst all the women, and all the women in this whole area became followers of Jesus. The power of a good conscience on learning to love well is beyond what we can even conceive of. We take it for granted because we have, you know, we, I think we underestimate the power of our conscience in living well. So we've talked about our motives for love and the moral shape of love. But the source of love, and we're going to end with this. Hey, if the worship, uh, Corey, Corey, are you still here? 
Do me a favor. Someone grab Corey and, and the worship guys and ask him to come back in. Uh, in 1 John, the, the source... The source of our love is it's not inside us. Here's the, here's the thing you've got to remember about love. You don't have enough willpower to love well. Do you all get that? Can we concede that? At our best, we can love and keep it up for a little while, but it's like we just don't have it within us. And 1 John says this, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And it's capital, they're talking about Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you and what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship was with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So what they're saying is, the God that our fathers worshipped, the God who we believe is good in, in all of His ways, we have come to know Him through this person, Jesus, the man Jesus, the Messiah. And we want you to experience what we have, that the life that's in Him is beyond compare. And that life is, and, and He says, and, he, and, and this, the start of this, it sounds a little, the way it's phrased, it sometimes can, you can, it, the, the impact of it can escape you. But when he says fellowship, what he means is, that, that word, that Greek word means to share in something, to experience something together. So he said, we were surprised that Jesus was the, this God we knew God loved well, but all of a sudden we experienced how well he loved. And that we realized through Jesus, everyone can experience God's love. That God loves well. We are learning to love well because of Jesus. So, what I want to tell you is faith, a sincere faith, is, is this childlike Thing where we make ourselves vulnerable to someone, to trust, to depend on someone. We're going to sing this little song that we do at the vineyard, and it's called Pour It Out. And if you've wrestled in your own life long enough to know that your heart isn't pure, but you want it to be pure, and your conscience isn't good, but you want it to be good, the key is to put your trust in this person, Jesus, as a way of life and to trust that he is actually here or or wherever you are and that if you will, in awareness of the need that you have, begin to open your heart up to him, he will begin to meet you. He will begin to make this this, this God who loves well, he'll make that love real to you. Now, we all have guards up against being vulnerable. We all do. We just do. And we're they're, and they're they're vigilant guards. And so we have to command them. We have to by the force of our will, we have to tell them to stand down. 
stop fighting. And we need to open our hearts up. So music is this powerful thing that that helps us to open our heart up to God in a way that we can experience it. And I'm sure different things I said struck you at different points. And and there are probably too many of us here that, that you're not aware of some need in your life in the area of love and loving well. But I don't want you to walk out of here and think, John just told us to bootstrap it. That loving well is just about, you know, spit and sweat. It's not. Loving well is about, remember I said this interplay. Loving well emerges when we recognize that God's moving towards us and we open our hearts up to him. When we open our hearts up to him, his love begins to come in. And sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes, I understand this, sometimes anger comes up when you become vulnerable because that's what's behind the guard. That's why the guard's there. And behind anger is hurt. As we sing this song, we're just going to sing it. I just want to give some space here before we dismiss for the Lord to work and for that interplay I described to happen. If you could, if you could do that with me. Why don't you stand up? And then we'll close after we sing this song a couple of times. Go ahead, Corey.